Welcome to Star Trek Comic Book Review. Our several-year mission will be to boldly go where no podcast has gone before. We will be reviewing every Star Trek comic book ever published. These stories have been released by Gold Key, Marvel, DC, Malibu, Wildstorm, Tokyo Press, IDW, and others. Star Trek and all that the Star Trek universe contains is copyrighted by CBS Studios, Inc. Hello and welcome to Star Trek Comic Book Review with Donovan and Ken. Episode number 114, recorded February 6th, 2013. This is our 52nd 90s episode, and today we're going to be covering the original series, issues 61 through 63. Very good. I always love Taz. Yeah. And like I kind of mentioned uh, a few weeks back when we were doing Taz, I guess they felt like the movie era was getting a little too close to Star Trek Six. So now we're going to get a lot of uh, flashbacks until we just full out just go back into time and we don't even have uh, these bookending type stories where we have the current time and then flashback to the past, which which these issues are going to be today. But pretty soon we won't even have that. It'll just all be based during the first five-year mission. Cool. Well, I'm fine with that. No, me too. Like I said, there was only so much, so many years after Star Trek VI that you could keep coming out with new issues and pretend like it's still happening before Star Trek VI. Right. That you're like, well, eventually I'm gonna, I want to address what actually happened in Star Trek VI, and if I do that, then I have to end the series. Right. Because they go off to be mothballed at the end of that movie. Right. Plus, it's kind of good. I, I kind of like going back in time when they were a little younger, anyway. So that way, you don't have the whole, my God, they're old as dirt. And still going out there doing stuff, you know, adventures, which, right. uh, you know, it's just sometimes it's a little distracting. Right. It's like, well, Kirk can still do that? Wow. Okay. <laughs> He's like well, since, ancient. Since the movie era was, was quote unquote, my Star Trek, that's that's the era that I, I grew up in and was first really exposed to Star Trek. Right. I, as a kid, I always had a hard time going back and watching those older the versions. Of or, yeah, the, yeah the, right. the old one. But well, now it, it, I, I enjoy it all. Yeah, it, it, in the first movies, you know, everybody was still fit and, uh, you know, could still hang pretty good. It was getting kind of uh, rough in the older, uh, you know, five and six. Right. You know, watching old guys get out there and do it all, especially uh, DeForest Kelly was getting up there. But that's fine. Still love them. Right. Still great. Yep. Nope, I like it. And, the, and these issues are good. I, I kind of wish the first issue we're going to talk about was a two-parter, and I kind of wish that the uh, second two stories, which is a two-parter, would have been like a three-parter. So the stories were good enough that I thought that they could expand on them and, and make them more interesting. Uh, right. But both of them, I think, suffer from having to end it really quick, and it gets kind of abrupt at the end. Right. And the first one is particularly interesting, because I do like a little revisit to Talos 4. Yeah, so this one actually has Return to Talos on the cover. Very nice. So this is issue 61. The actual title of the issue is Door in the Cage. And as everybody knows, The Cage was the first Star Trek episode ever filmed. That starred Christopher Pike. Writer was Stephen H. Wilson. Penciler is Rod Wingham. Inker, Arnie Starr, letterer Bob Panaha, colorist David Graff, and editor is Margaret Clark. All right, so the cover shows a movie-era Spock uh, shown in the wheelchair, similar to the one that Pike had in Menagerie. Around this picture of Spock, there are blue-shaded 
pictures of number one, a.k.a. Margelle Barrett from uh, the episode The Cage. Uh, she's holding a phaser towards the reader. There's two movie-era Klingons off to the side of her. And below them is a saber-toothed tiger-type beast. And kind of in the shadows overlooking all of this is the face of a Talosian. So the story starts with Shuttlecraft Highland entering the atmosphere of Talos Four. Spock is at the controls, and he's recording his personal log in regards to Christopher Pike and his adventures that we've all seen in the Menagerie and in the episode The Cage. So there's a little flashback to anybody who didn't know who Christopher Pike was. He is coming to Talos Four with Starfleet's permission, because as everybody knows, Talos Four is a uh, death sentence planet. If you go there, you get the death sentence. But he's got permission to make Pike an offer that's going to change his life. So upon landing, Spock is greeted by a young, blonde-haired boy. The boy says that he hopes that Spock is real and not one of his father's tests. Spock tells the boy that he knows that he's an illusion since there's only two humans on Talos IV. And both of them, maybe not the best of shape in order to produce a child. Pike arrives and tells Spock that this is indeed his son, Philip. And for being the illusion form of Pike, he's aged a bit. He has a little bit of gray in his temple, and he has a full beard, which also has a lot of gray in it. All in all, a good look for the former captain. Pike sends Philip ahead to inform Vina that they have a guest. When Pike and Spock arrive at Pike's home, and they are soon at the table, and Vina is serving them dinner. During dinner, Pike and Philip show how the humans are now able to control the illusions that before were only controlled by the Telosians. Spock then informs Pike of his offer. The Federation has found a way to reverse the radiation damage that he took all those years ago. He wants Pike to return with him and undergo the operations. Pike tells Spock that this is a family matter and that he'll need to discuss it with Vina and Philip. Spock retires to his bedroom. In the middle of the night, Spock is up and recording his personal logs. He does not believe that Philip is a real son of Pike and Vina, since both of them were uh, so damaged and disabled. Uh, and he keeps mentioning that the radiation that Pike suffered from would have sterilized him. He does not understand why the real Pike would be deranged in such a way to believe that the child is real. And then he starts to wonder if this is even Pike at all. Spock then leaves his room and walks about the cabin. In their bed, Pike and Vina talk about the offer that Spock had made. Pike says that he has given his word to help the Telosians retake the planet. But he does entertain the idea of being able to move and breathe normally again. Unbeknownst to the couple, Spock has been eavesdropping. He turns to leave and is suddenly attacked by a large saber-toothed cat. The cat is too powerful for Spock. Uh, the cat knocks, knocks him onto the floor, but before it can take a bite out of our favorite Vulcan, Pike arrives and stuns the creature with a phaser. Spock asks Pike about not living a normal life. And to this, Pike uses his illusionary power to put Spock into a wheelchair. And Spock is only able to communicate with beeps. He then reverts Spock to normal and is outraged at the Vulcan, very angry. 
Spock suggests a mind meld to sort out the truth from the illusion. Before Spock can make a connection, Klingons suddenly appear and attack Spock. As Spock and Pike fight off the Klingons, one of them turns into number one, and she fires at Spock with a phaser aimed directly at his face. The phaser does no damage since Spock is in control of what is and is not real. Spock then reaches again for Pike, and then suddenly Pike changes into the form of Philip. It was Philip all this time producing these illusions. Philip is in tears about the possibility of his father's departure. The real Pike arrives and allows Spock to perform a mind meld. Spock learns that he and Vina had been happy on Talos IV for many years, but somehow they felt like something was missing. He then learned of some advanced medical techniques from some ancient Talosian texts. He was able to perform surgeries on himself to allow him to conceive Philip. He tells Spock that he will not be taking him up on his offer. He has a duty here with his family and with the Talosians. Spock returns to his ship and informs McCoy and Kirk of Pike's decision. Spock and McCoy have their normal quibbles, and Kirk informs them that they're both acting childish, to which McCoy responds, But he started it! Pretty bad joke at the end. Yeah, it wasn't a great joke at the end, but it was a good story. I liked it. I really liked it, too, and I wish they would have gone... I mean, the Telosians don't even make an appearance in this issue, which I thought was, was kind of lacking. Well, they I don't of, think it was absolutely necessary, but that would have been kind of interesting. Yeah, would have. I mean, it never really explains what Pike is doing on the surface that's actually helping the Telosians retake the planet. So I just think there was a lot of more story there that they could have flushed out and maybe made this a two-parter. You or know, were it, they actually starting to grow? I mean, they were starting to grow things on the surface again, right? Right. But, I mean, how were they really doing and how much... I mean, why can't the Telosians help them at all? Right. I don't know. It just I wish there would have I just think there would have been more more there. It could have been they could have stretched it out to a two parter. Right. Well I I was very interested in seeing after all these years what happened to Pike and Vina. So now we have an idea. Right. We have an idea. We'll we'll get mm-hmm. some different ideas later when we do some of the Marvel series, the uh, Pike and Vina make another appearance oh interesting yeah we didn't we didn't do all the pike era issues back when we did our our pike series uh mainly because i thought that those these other issues that have pike tie into the the actual story arcs of that particular series too too much to just take it out and read them as a random issue oh okay fine well good to see what at least the dc authors thought might have happened right and this is not even the first time dc did this right wasn't it annual number two i think that we did it during our pike era uh, story arc where it was like the last mission of the fir- the first five-year mission and they end up going to talos four and the klingons are there and they're trying to take over the the illusionary powers that the telosians have do you remember oh, that yeah. yep i remember that one yeah so. i don't like that as much I didn't like it either. I mean, it was, it was you know, older, and, and I think these comic books are taking a little bit more serious look at things than, than some of those older ones. Right. But, and, and, and a more serious look at things, I think, is also examined in the, in the next two 
issues that we have uh, coming up. Not to jump forward, but just to mention that. A little bit more of a serious tone. Right. And unfortunately, I think those, like I said earlier, that story arc ends abruptly, too, which I think was yeah. was a little unfortunate. Right. But we'll talk about that later. So we will. So, offline, you mentioned that you did not think that looked like Margelle Barrett, number one, on the cover. I said I wasn't sure who she was supposed to be. Because I didn't recognize who she was supposed to be, that kind of is a testament to maybe she not being a spitting image of Majelle Barrett from the uh, original Cage days. Right. But, but since you mentioned it, I mean, she looks a bit like, like, uh, like Majelle Barrett. She looks a bit like number one. The hair is right anyway. The face is close-ish. But definitely all of these covers, all three of these covers, I'm not sure who did them, but I'm sure you, you are. They all look like they're done by the same artist. And they definitely have a distinctive style to them. Mm. Anyway, I thought it was a very interesting premise to see what happened with, with Vina and Pike 40 years down the road. Uh, right. It was 40 years, right? Uh, yeah, something like that. Yeah, something like that. So it, it, was, it was a chunk of time. Definitely not a young man sitting in that chair. Uh, and I was kind of wondering with all the cell damage and everything, how well he would live you know, in, in after 40 years. But then it's like, hey, if the Telosians were able to put Vina back together again... You know, maybe they got the medical tech to uh, not let extreme aging affect uh, Pike too much. I don't know. Right. Well, well, in regards to that, it got me to thinking, what exactly is Pike doing for them on the service? This is kind of what I was getting to earlier. Yeah. He's well, really in the chair. He's oh, not yeah. up moving around, even yeah. though he could project himself moving around. Uh, can he actually affect... I mean, Physical he, matter? No. Yeah, can he go out there and hoe the garden? No. Or, no. I mean, yeah, he could project and the, and, a version of him doing that, but it doesn't actually get the yard hoed. No. And and the hoed yard is an illusion. So, And you're not growing anything that way. And the way they explain that, because they, they do supposedly have a real log cabin, supposedly, some kind of house. I think, well, they explain that kind of weakly by just saying, ooh, Telosian robots were uh, actually doing all the manual work. Uh, Which is like, um, okay, well, if you had robots doing the work, then really? I mean, what... Where does it say that? What, what's Pike contributing? Right, absolutely. Um, where does that say that? I, I missed that. But they actually, I think they actually have a, a, a one panel that actually shows some kind of robot. Yeah. Well, I know there's like a, ro a picture of him going through the archives and things like that, but I didn't yeah. remember seeing a picture of a robot. Oh, no, there it is. Yeah. Yeah, they're on page 22. Yeah, they, they just explained it away by saying it was a robot. Then why do they need Pike? Yeah, I mean, I mean, he can... You know, maybe it's his his fire to want to go on the surface and fire to to want to have a log cabin, and you know, it's it's his directorship of all this kind of stuff that's making things happen. You know, because he has the will to make it happen. But really, it's the robots doing everything. Yeah. And and, and, and by the way, now that you're on page uh, 20, I was on 22, but I can go to 20. Yeah, go to 20. Why does Pike have red hair, and doesn't he look a bit like Kirk? <laughs> a little bit. In, in that scene with him and Vina. Uh, apparently without shirts on. In the nude. I think so. That's that's a bit Kirkian. <laughs> and it gets gets you to wonder. Uh, are they're obviously not really nude since they're both. I mean, she really is there, but he's not. He's in a chair somewhere. <laughs> well, they're both. I would She's, hope they're both she, there, but 
but but he's he's an invalid. I mean, he can't even move his arms or anything. Right, and, and it shows them sitting on a cliff face. I mean, he's not he's not going to be there riding horses. No, no, of, of course not. No, it's all so, illusion. I mean, he's it's in the illusion. cabin somewhere, projecting his mind where she is, and she's. Uh, it just got well, me to thinking can... of 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 what the heck did the end of Menagerie really mean after all? <laughs> Which I'd never really thought about it until this well, issue. Uh, I think it means they both sit around in reality in a room somewhere, and their mind lives. You know, but she, she's really there. She just doesn't look. Well, like okay, that. hold on. They're both really there. It's just so your point is that she's not an invalid. I mean, she has use right. of her arms and legs, and she can walk around. Right. I mean, they're both there. I mean, odds are they both they they both might be in the same room all the time. Maybe they never leave the house. If there really is a house, I assume there really is a house. You know. So it's kind of like the surrogates. It's all in their minds. Or, or that surrogates movie and comic book where they, everybody just plugs into their little avatar, and then the avatar is the one that goes out into the world and does well, all that stuff. Yeah, except that the world doesn't really exist. <laughs> well. And neither does their bodies. So it's kind of like that, only, you know, there's no robotic bodies. Right. Anyway, the, the, it, it, it's very. It's a very hollow life. <laughs> I mean, really. I mean, you're just imagining all this stuff, but you're like sitting there, a vegetable in your blinking chair. <laughs> That's sad. Yeah, it is sad. Right. Anyway. Uh, but at least through the use of the robots, they're able to actually start to build something. I assume that the that the cabin really exists. Right. I assume that the crops really exist, even though it's robots who are you know, actually doing the physical labor. Right, right. And it appears as if the sun really exists. Although, you don't really know 100%. Because uh, in the comic book, he appears to be a, f- a perfectly healthy, handsome young man. Uh, so, I assume he came out as a normal person. No, I, I agree. And it, it was just kind of sad that the, that little boy has to live that life, too. Well, yeah, because think about that. Because he's a real person. I mean... He's a real physical kid. Yep. Um, and yes, if they were able to produce like a human colony or something that weren't, quote, slaves, that weren't allowed to leave or something like that, then that might be something. But his decision to stay there is, who knows, maybe dooming that kid to be quite alone uh, if indeed the Telosians can't keep Vina and uh, Pike alive indefinitely. Right. Yeah, no, that's a good point. I mean, cause yeah. what kind of life is he really going to have? So maybe, maybe it would have been better if Pike would have let Spock take uh, Philip to Starfleet or whatever. Uh, yeah, yep. Well, yeah. Unless the long-term idea is they're able to pump out more humans, but you know, what are you going to do? Uh, you know, get together with your sister? Yes, I don't know about that. All right. Yeah, that, that only works with Adam and Eve's kids. Uh, Any time in the fu- later, that's just weird. yeah biblical references there you go yeah so who knows we're thinking too much right on on a different note then when it was talking about the Telosians past when they used to be you know colonizing other worlds and things like that but they Mm -hmm. were had no contempt with life uh, so they would put other races in like gladiatorial type fights right do you think that they were trying to imply that uh, these Telosians these ancestors of the Telosians were similar to um, 
those little brains in the jar that that made Kirk and them do those gladiatory fights. And I don't oh, remember the issue. I don't. I mean, the episode. I don't know about that. I don't know. Maybe. You know I'm what I'm talking sure. about, though, right? Yeah, so, I know which episode you're talking about. Although, quite frankly, I haven't thought about that one in ages. Isn't that the one where Kirk kisses Uhura and it was big stink at the time? Well, that was the Apollo episode, wasn't it? Was, was that it? Apollo that forced them them to kiss? Was it? I thought it was the little brain jars. The little brain jars. <laughs> <laughs> I don't. I, I thought it was Apollo, but maybe maybe not. Which, by the way, I hate that episode. Interesting how they what they showed Klingons fighting Vulcans or Romulans. Right. It, it, so I thought that was kind of interesting. They chose those races to put in there in yeah. the gladiatorial games. Right. And which, uh, and which the Klingon because... even has some kind of batleth sort of kind of, which is kind of cool. Right. And that picture with the Telosians kind of, you know, above them, kind mm-hmm. of watching it. Right. Uh, I don't know if it was just just me, obviously, since you're not seeing it, but it just kind of made me think of that Brain and Jars episode. And then I was thinking, well, maybe, you know, over the years, this, this little sect of Telosians evolved into the Brains and Jars, and then the other ones <laughs> went back to the Talos 4 or whatever. That's possible. Well, all, all that all that conjecture going on in the uh, Deep Space Nine comic about... Oh, you know, the prophets coming out of the wormhole might have been offshoots of the original humanoid race in the in the, you know, in the, in the, in the galaxy or whatever. It's like, well, whatever. Yeah, you can conjecture anything, maybe. <laughs> Next, you're going to tell me you don't think this is real. <laughs> of course not. Mm. Of course not. So I really like seeing the uh, little vibrating plants on page four. Oh, I missed them. At least, at least I thought I thought that's what they were. You know, those ones that, that, that the sound was able to make Spock smile. Make him smile, yep. Yep, which, oh, you're not going to see that anymore. Spock changed a little bit in the second pilot. But uh, I, I kind of like, I, I like that, that they threw that in there. So where did you see them, the, just the plants that were next Page to Page four. Yeah, right. So they're like in the foreground. So I think the first place you see them is when the shuttle's landing. So it's swooping, swooshing down with that, that really kind of effeminate purple swoosh Aww. behind the ship. Yeah. It's pink. or purp- I think it's pink. Anyway, but you look on the side and there's like green kind of floating rocks. And then you see, oh, there's little, brand- there's little sticks. Sticking. Oh, they're, they're plants. <laughs> and it's like, oh, they kind of look like those, uh, those vibrating hummy things. Right. In, which, in the cage. Which those weren't real, right? Because those were an illusion. Well, how do you know that was an illusion? I mean, the 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 surviving uh, colonists or the the scientific, well, whoever they were supposed to be, that was an illusion. But right, who knows? I, 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 I was just being sure. sarcastic. Sorry, That's didn't fine. mean to derail. Oh, sorry. I that was a joke, and I didn't get it. Damn it! Yeah, it was a weak, weak, weak joke. <laughs> so uh, my last comment is uh, there on page three. Okay. When when Pike shows up for the first time, right? Strapping guess, man, isn't he? He looks pretty good, I thought. Yeah, strapping, strapping man. <laughs> Anyways, on Spock's sleeve, there's a white circle with a bunch of circles and dots in it. Yep. It, like orbits and stuff. And yeah, I mean, I think it's supposed to be the sun, and then maybe the the planets around our solar system. It's the right number, right? I see nine dots. Right. And Pluto was still a planet when this was made. 
Yeah, uh, I'm not quite sure where I'd have a, some symbol uh, that's that represented Earth. Exactly, that was my point. To be Federation. <laughs> that was, and uh, then I, my question was: is is that on the um, is that on the Wrath of Khan uh, away mission jackets? Do they I'm always gonna, have that white I, patch on them? I don't know for sure, but I'm going to guess yes. Yeah, I'm going to guess yes too. But I'm with you. Why? Yeah. I, maybe it's some. Maybe it's Vulcan happens to have nine planets or something. I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. So whatever race you come from, that's the patch. Patch you, you get. Head. I don't. I don't know. <laughs> I mean, uh, Vulcan is a founding member member of the Federation, just like like Earth. I mean, uh, sure. I, don't, I don't think Earth has any sway over anything more than any other race, but. Except they make the shows that we watch. <laughs> and Starfleet headquarters is, is in San Francisco. Yeah. And what, Except, what, what, what is, the, is the seat of the Federation also in Paris or something like that? In Star Trek VI or something like that? Or maybe I'm, No, I think that was wrong. just the, that alternate reality they showed them. Right? There was that one comic oh, book maybe. where in, in an alternate reality it was in Paris. Oh, okay. Anyway, so uh, yeah, good point about the patch. I don't know why that would that would be the soul system, but who knows? Maybe it is. Right. Last thing I want to say is how what what was the game plan to get Pike back on his feet again? They were going to try to clone a body from his DNA or something, and then stuff his brain into it. I mean, what was that going to be exactly? Yeah, I don't know. Because I think I think they said something like that, and it's like, right. well, kudos to, for you to to get Pike back on his feet again. But I thought you guys didn't go in for cloning and uh, you know things like that. And well, they they clone body parts, so when your heart goes out, you can just get a clone of a new heart, and then they just pop it in. Because they they make references to that with McCoy being as old as he is and the next generation They're replacing parts. Yeah. Right. Okay. But okay. I don't know. I didn't get that they were going to clone his whole body and then just stick his brain into it. I kind of thought that well, they were going to just clone certain parts of him. And well, yeah, but you know. I mean, but look at his body. The only thing worthwhile is his brain. I mean, what are they going to what are they going to keep other than his brain? I mean, they can't they can't transfer consciousnesses, right? Even though other races certainly have in these stories. <laughs> I was going to say, you don't watch Star Trek. <laughs> <laughs> but the Federation never did that. Right, true. And we now know that McCoy has at least put Spock's brain in. (laughs) (laughs) Back in his body. Uh, And Spock told him how to do it. (laughs) You love that episode. Uh, Spock's brain. An example of all that's wrong with Star Trek. Uh, Anyway. Yeah, I I, I just thought it was kind of given the short, uh, a short explanation, which is fine, I guess. I mean, the main point is they figure out a way to do it, you know, move on. But right, the details sound kind of uh, not the kind of stuff that uh, the good guy Federation tends to go in for. But which again is why I think they should have, you know, extended this one out a couple of more episodes. Yeah, or issues. Be able to explain some things better. Right. Yeah. Okay, that's all I have to say. Okay, I'm done okay. too. Okay. So our next issue is issue number sixty-two, which starts a two-issue arc. And the title is The Alone. And this one's published date is August 1994. The writer is Kevin Ryan. Artist is Rod Wingham. Inks are Arnie Starr. 
Colorist is David Graff. Letterer is Bob Panaha. And editor is Margaret Clark. The cover shows Spock and McCoy in a collapsing building, both looking at a third person who was buried in stone that fell down from the ceiling. Only a single hand sticks out from the rubble, a hand attached to an arm clad in gold fabric adorned with captain's braid. Rocky orange font at the cover's top says, Out of time. The issue opens on the bridge. Kirk is hesitant about something, and Bones is prodding him to get on with it. Spock toys with McCoy a bit by taking one of his flowery metaphors more literally than intended. Finally, McCoy tells Kirk he is a hero down on that planet, and a lot of people are going to be damn glad to see him. Kirk finally relents. Kirk's thoughts take him into the distant past. During the final months of he and the crew's original five-year mission, they arrive at Venu 2 to make an archaeological survey of the planet that is currently devoid of intelligent life but has extensive ruins of an ancient advanced civilization. They transport to a huge golden building that is emitting unexpected power readings deep beneath the surface. In fact, Spock comments, most of the building's structure is beneath the ground. They enter and find a surprisingly intact interior with many sophisticated machines that still have power. After some analysis, Spock shows the others what he calls the central control panel for a powerful transporter through time as well as space. As Spock begins to comment how it appears to be larger on the inside than the outside, the building starts shaking violently. Chunks of the roof begin to drop all around them. Spock reports the structure is being attacked from the outside. Kirk calls up to the ship. Scotty reports the ship is under attack. Kirk orders Scotty to protect the ship at all costs. Kirk orders everyone out. They have a better chance on the surface since the roof is coming down on them. Everyone makes it out, but Kirk gets cut off. The entrance collapses with Kirk inside. Mr. Scott is able to transport everyone out except for Kirk. Once on the ship, they assess an attack craft has fired upon the building while the mothership was attacking the Enterprise. Scotty reports there is no life readings nor Kirk's communicator signal. There is no sign of the captain. Spock opens up a channel to the mothership and discusses the situation with Inkenar, the commander of the Wumpar defense fleet. He demands that the Enterprise withdraw immediately. Meanwhile, somewhere else, maybe some time else, Kirk finds himself on a planet other than Venu 2. It is night there, on a planet that appears to have no moons. To escape being crushed, he was forced to use the alien transportation device to transport him away, but to where he does not know. His communicator is unable to pick up any signals. As time goes by, he is able to find water, plants to eat, and fish to catch. Days go by with no sign of rescue. He realizes he could not only be on an unexpected alien planet, but if Spock was right, he could be in a different time. Finding Kirk will be next to impossible if he has traveled into the past or maybe the future. Back on the Enterprise, they want to search for Kirk, but until Spock is able to deal with the Wumpar, the search cannot make progress. 
Mr. Scott assesses the Enterprise's speed and superior weaponry will be more than a match for the larger but less formidable Wumpar ship. McCoy tells Spock he should play hardball with the Wumpar, since that is probably the speediest way to get rid of them so they can focus on finding Jim. Spock says he will first try again to reason with them. The Wumpar hail them, and they power up their weapons. Meanwhile, Kirk continues to record his log on rudimentary paper and ink he has been able to fashion on the planet. It's been 18 days on the planet so far. He has seen no signs of technology or intelligent life. No signals of any kind have been picked up by his communicator. He suspects, more and more, he may have been transported into the past, which will make his rescue virtually impossible. Though he can sustain himself for the foreseeable future with the plant and wildlife he has found, he thinks it will very likely be a very lonely experience. He fashions a formidable bow and arrow and takes off to explore his hopefully temporary home. Meanwhile on the Enterprise, Spock tries the diplomatic, logical approach and explains their situation again to the Wumpar. The Wumpar's response is a swift and immediate attack on the Enterprise. The Enterprise is able to withstand their ineffective attacks and makes the Wumpar mothership immobile by using their tractor beams. Spock is able to finally convince the outmatched Wumpar commander to allow them to search for Kirk unimpeded. Later on the planet, Scotty is directing excavation by hand to remove the rubble blocking the entrance. Surprisingly, the Wumpar actually join in on the heavy manual labor. Meanwhile, Kirk's exploration took him by foot across the continent. His travels took many months. His thoughts went out to his shipmates, whose five-year mission is ended, and they are probably off onto their new assignments. He found no intelligent life and continued to pick up no signals on his communicator. Finally, one night he is attacked by a pack of alien wolf-bear-like things, with glowing red eyes and huge bodies. Meanwhile, Spock, McCoy, and the Wumpar finally make it into the room with the space-time transportation machine. Since there is no body, and not even a communicator signal, Spock surmises the captain was carried away by the transportation device. After examining the device for a while, Spock estimates the captain was transported somewhere in this sector to a point in time somewhere in the past 300 years. Shocked, McCoy asks Spock if he knows the ramifications of what he just said. To be continued. Hmm. That does not sound good. It does not sound good. It sounds like, wow. The possibility of getting cut off from the rest of a landing party is always there, but at least you normally have a chance of getting uh, located. (laughs) I mean, there are provisions for that. But this, I mean, in space and time, that's amazing. Yeah, I mean, I'm reading this thinking, well, crud, he's now three months older than everybody else on the ship. Right. Hope he doesn't stay there even longer, because how are they going to explain that one? Exactly. Hmm? Or maybe how his hair has turned red. Did it turn red? Well, yeah, it has that uh, reddish tint. Reddish tint. It is red, baby. (laughs) He's got red hair, man. He looks like some kind of a a Viking mountain man or something. It's because he's out in the sun all the time. That must be it. Hope he has some SPF. (laughs) 
I mean, you know he doesn't, although he has a phaser and a communicator that never runs out of batteries. Right, which is handy, isn't it? Right. I mean, you try taking your iPhone out more than a couple of days out in the wilderness. And see what happens. You're probably not going to be using it anymore. Probably not. But odds are they got something better than lithium-ion batteries to work with in the future. But Me. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, were you making a joke about it being larger on the inside than the outside? I was. Okay, because I even had to go back and reread all that while you were giving your synopsis to see <laughs> if it was really in there, and, it, and it's not. Of course it isn't. <laughs> but I'm reading the thing, and as soon as he says that, I immediately think Doctor Who. Sure. Hello. So I thought I'd make a little joke. I'll tell you what I was thinking more than Doctor Who, and, and it's also a riff of Doctor Who, is yeah. uh, Gary Seven. Yeah, yeah, exactly right. Because didn't Only... Gary Seven have a transporter beam that could take that? That's how he traveled through time. Was it was like a super powerful transporter beam of some sort? Well, was... I thought, and I know we've talked about this before, but and maybe I'm not remembering correctly because I always thought he only traveled in space, not time. But maybe we talked about this already, and you corrected me. I don't know, but I thought he always traveled in space, not time. In that two-parter, he traveled through time. Okay. Well, no, he. Tra- I thought he traveled through time, and uh, I don't know. No, he did. He didn't. I don't think. I, I'm. I am ninety-nine and nine 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 tenths percent sure that he did not travel in time in the uh, Taz episode he was in. Right. Yeah, he grew up on a, in another planet or whatever right. even though he was, he was extracted right he was right. extracted and some kind of dna stuff and whatever right 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 okay well then it was just that two-parter that kind of bridged next gen and original series that uh had him traveling through time i guess and i and I, I don't necessarily think that's canon but whatever well uh true but but we had already read it and that's what i was thinking when i was reading right. this right okay yeah. All right. So time and space. I figured, you know, what is is it blue? Is it is it box like? No. But I thought I would throw a little little joke in there. All right. I was just making sure because sometimes the writers throw in little jokes like in there, like uh, you know, the <laughs> shuttlecraft last issue was Heinlein, which is ah yes, named after a little a little doff of the cap, right? To one so, of the finest uh, sci-fi authors ever. So I thought maybe. They did that here, and me being a Doctor Who fan, I missed it. And I was, like, kicking myself for, how did I miss that joke? <laughs> but I didn't. No, you didn't miss anything. Yeah, so uh, Kirk looks quite like uh, Grizzly Adams. Uh, except, of course, for his uh, green shirt still being intact, mostly. Right. Looks pretty good in that in that beard. That's right. Looks like uh, the brawny man. The bra- <laughs> Paper towel, right. Gotcha. Right. <laughs> Yeah, too bad that bear is about to rip his face off. <laughs> I know. If it's wolves, that's one thing. but And it kind of looks like wolves at first. But when you see Kirk stick his spear into one of their mouths, it's like, that ain't no wolf. That's a big critter. That's a bear-like critter. Right. And there's like, well, there's four of them. Anyway. There's four of them here, and there's only three of them at the beginning of the next issue. So maybe he kills that one right here, and, and we just never see uh, it again. Perhaps, perhaps. Maybe the little spear in the mouth. Uh, Actually, got you know what? There's, there's four of them on on page twenty-three. There's the yeah, one standing it, exactly. up. No, yeah, so, I, say, so, well, I keep saying four, but I mean to say five. There's oh. five of them there. 
Oh, okay. So you see four in the middle panel, but when you go to the bottom, you're right. There is five. Right. Yeah. That yeah. doesn't matter. They're between issues. So there's yeah. only three issue, three in the next issue. So he he must take two out here. <laughs> Very brawny. Very brawny. Yeah. So why does he have like the gauntlet thing? I mean, does that help you? Because it looks cool. <laughs> exactly. I mean, I could kind of understand the the you know make you know having to make shift boots, but uh, to well, keep yeah, the boots it's together. Wear out. Right, but I don't understand why he had to have the gauntlets thing. Or I think it's not a, really th- gauntlets; it's just armbands, like yeah. leather armbands. Right. Why? Because, because it's a fashion statement. Come on, he's got nothing else to do. Mm. Yep, that's what I would do if I was stranded on a planet. Just exactly some armbands. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> uh, yeah, but, but he is quite the adaptable explorer, though, isn't he? Well, we know that he's very resourceful from the, uh, the episode Arena, that he uh-huh. can just take <laughs> right. certain elements that are around and, and make rudimentary weapons out of it. Yes, he remembers the exact formula for gunpowder, yes. It's yes. something I know. I, I know I know that. Well, and he fortunately had those diamonds or whatever to put in there as projectiles for the gunpowder. Didn't he, didn't he shoot off diamonds in that? I think so. Yeah, so here he's kind of not so much in this episode or issue, but he'll he'll get into more of the resourcefulness next issue. Yes, yes he will. All right, uh, my last comment, if you don't mind, is what is he writing on? They look like leaves. Yeah, I, I think I think it's actually rudimentary paper that he has made. I think. So why are Which, they leaf tape? Uh, I don't know. Because uh, paper is pretty. I mean, all you have to do is ground up wood and mix it with water and dry it. And keep I think it I think that's pretty much. I think that's pretty much what paper's made out of. So. Hmm. Yeah, maybe pressing it. Maybe you got to press it. You know, compress it a little bit. I don't know. Something like that. I don't know. I want to know where the ink's coming from. Oh, that's blood. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah, good point. Well, it yeah. could be blood. He killed those bears. Use the blood, blood Frank. It could Boom. be. There you go. What I want to know is where does he get that wonderful hat he's wearing on page twenty-two? It's just a wicker hat. But look at it. That's cool. I mean, it yeah. almost looks like like the uh, kind of wren or crane that's on the next page. Alien crane. Oh yeah, yeah. kind of has the same crest. Right. Yeah. No, I just thought that was, you know, a little wicker hat that you can make using grass and stuff. I've seen people make those. Right. So if if you if you don't have the is- access to the issue, it is kind of cool as they, you know, t- fast forward in time a lot as Kirk is doing his many travels and he's tracking through snow in some and then in others he is through the heading through the desert where there's some really weird looking saguaros and other kinds of cacti and He's just all over the place. And he's swimming across like a river at one point, he pulling is. a little raft of his belongings. That he is fashioned, exactly. He is going, he is out there doing it. Yeah, it got me to thinking that if I was him and I got stranded on an island or a planet, right? Uh, I would be dead. <laughs> I wouldn't know how to do any of this. <laughs> no, probably not. And I'm not so sure I would be going all over the place. I would think I would try to be 
<laughs> you know, doing what he, well, what we'll see him do later. You know, make a little homestead. Right. And uh, get some permanent shelter and that kind of stuff. Yeah, I mean, he's already scanned the whole planet with his communicator, and then there's no signals, so I don't really know what he's looking for. Well, I mean, there can be people around without technology. Right. So, you know, at least it'd be somebody to communicate with, if there was any intelligent life. Right. But, uh, yeah. Maybe he's got nothing better to do. I mean, he's I, an explorer. I, Being with Starfleet, you're an explorer, so he's exploring. Sure. I did like that they actually made a reference to that episode where he lived with the Native Americans type culture for a while. Right. Um, was that in this issue? Okay. I thought it was in this issue. Um, and maybe it was. Maybe it was. Yeah, because I think by the next issue, he's pretty much given up and he's just doing his own thing. Yes, he's starting his... Well, we'll see when we get to the next one. Right. He, he, let's just say he starts a long-term project. <laughs> right. Okay, last thing I want to say is, it's a good thing that this planet does not have a lot of nasty predators and poisonous plants. You don't think those bear creatures are nasty? That's only one. Right. That's not, that's not bad. You know, run into one, one set of bears and the whole time, that's not too bad. Hmm. And, no, and no poisonous plants. I mean, how many plants, you know, you eat the wrong mushroom... You're dead. He knows what's good and what's not. Plus, he still but has... How? Maybe... It's an alien planet. I don't know. I'm just making stuff up. So that's why I'm saying, since he has no... He know he knows nothing about this planet or the flora and fauna, even though a lot of it looks kind of like, kind of Earth-like. Um, right. He doesn't know which mushrooms are poisonous or not, or plants or, or vegetables. So it must be a pretty benign planet, on the whole. Except right. for the bear wolf things. Right, and and... Yeah, I, I I'll have a comment about that next issue. I don't want to say it yet. Okay, that's the last thing I have to say about this one. All right. So uh, one thing, and you know, we don't normally talk about the advertisements, but did you uh, notice all the Judge Dredd comic? Oh yeah, oh yeah, lots ads. of lots of Judge Dredd ads in these comics. Right. And it looks cool. Right. Judge so, Dredd is a kick butt kind of guy. So yeah, at this time, you know, they were trying to introduce Judge Dredd to the American audience. Huh. DC was so instead of, I mean, in addition to, I think they reprinted some of the original UK comics, but mm-hmm. but this series that they're advertising is a brand new series written, you know, for the American audience. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it wasn't set in the same continuity, so it didn't go over very well. They uh-huh. tried it twice. Each one lasted like maybe twelve issues, eighteen issues, something like that. Right. But it, it never really caught on. Uh-huh. There is a couple of cool Batman Judge Dredd crossovers, but mm-hmm. uh, but that Judge Dredd's supposed to be the the UK version and not this version, which makes uh-huh. it even more confusing. Yeah, especially since time period wise, there should be no overlap. Well, time travel, dude. Duh. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, okay. Yeah. So, so Judge Dredd was doing the time traveling into the past. One time, and then Batman and the Joker one other time goes I, into the future. I, I, what? How does Batman go in the future? I, uh, whatever, it doesn't matter. Let's move on. <laughs> one thing about Judge Dredd that I think is cool is that yeah. you know he's a 40-year-old character in the UK, yeah. and he's for every year of publication, he's supposed to be one year older than he was the year before. So. Oh. The newest issue of Judge Dredd that comes out this this year, this this month, uh-huh. is supposed to really be 40 years after that first one. Whereas wow. 
all of our characters, Superman, Spider-Man, Batman, they're always going to be 25 to 35 years old. They never get any older. Well, Whereas Judge Dredd yeah. is, has, you know, they, they acknowledge, and they do a really good job about acknowledging every little story that's happened in that 40 years. Right. Yeah. So just a different well, way of doing it. Sure. Uh, and, like that. and I hope since it's so far in the future that that people live longer to help explain that. Well, he takes his vitamins. <laughs> okay. Okay. And isn't isn't he like something like isn't he kind of like a clone or something of like the original judge or something or Right. Yep. Something like that. Yes, exactly. Oh, you know your dread. I love it. Well, I've I've started listening to audiobooks these days. Oh, okay. You're listening to some of those big finish ones? Yes. Very oh. good. Very good. All right. We want to go on the next uh, Star Trek? Please, let's find out how, how the Alone wraps up. Yeah, and unfortunately, it does wrap up fast. Yeah, okay. All right, so uh, issue number 63 is entitled The Alone Part 2. It came out September of 1994, and writer was Kevin Ryan, penciler Rod Wingham, inker Arnie Starr, letterer Bob Panaha, colorist David Graff, and editor is Margaret Clark. So the cover shows a ragged Kirk in a torn gold tunic lying on the ground. Perhaps he's dead. You don't know. Around him, you see the outline of the Enterprise swoosh logo made out of small rocks. And then we see two skull-headed pig-like creatures moving closer towards him, perhaps about to take a, a bite. So, story starts off with uh, the present day. I'm going to call it the present day, but it's, you know, probably right before Star Trek uh, 6. So, uh, Kirk is at his desk in his quarters, and he's thinking about his upcoming return to Gribbon 2. He is reading the logs that he wrote on those large palm tree-looking pieces of paper. As he's thinking back, you can almost see it getting all wavy, and you hear the music. So we go back into a flashback. So the flashback starts off with Kirk in his tattered green uniform. He's fighting a three-horned bear-like monster. Two more of the creatures are standing around the fighting duo, ready to pounce on the loser. And it's probably going to be Kirk. Kirk's spear snaps in half when he plunges it into the monster. He's forced to pull out his phaser. With it, he's able to take out two of the creatures. And then he finishes the third one with the remains of his spear. He feels bad having to kill the creatures since they were just trying to eat. Unfortunately, they were just trying to eat him. He then thinks the good side of this is that he will not be hungry himself for quite some time. He is even more heartbroken when the leader of the pack's stomach starts to bulge and writhe until a little small cub appears. On the Enterprise, Spock is ordered by Starfleet Command to call off the search and return to Starbase 68. He says he will do so. When the communication is over, he orders a course plotted to Starbase 68. However, he requests that the course take them within scanning distance of every planet along the way. The rodent-like Wumper calls Spock and tells him that he and his people will help Spock search for his captain. He also gives away that he eavesdropped and heard the whole conversation that Spock was having with Starfleet Command. But nobody makes reference to that. 
Back on the planet, it's now spring, and the plants are starting to bloom, and small creatures are coming out of their burrows. And Kirk and his faithful monster pup, which he named Gary, are scavenging the land looking for basic needs, including small red rocks. Kirk takes these rocks to a mesa and scatters them into an unknown pattern. So I guess we're supposed to assume we didn't see the cover, but... Uh, he's making a pattern, and we're not, we're not privy to what it's supposed to be. On the Enterprise, Wumper beams over and tells Spock the story of his people. Their people expanded past their home world many years ago and colonized nearby worlds. Then, an alien race arrived and destroyed most of their fleet. We flash back to the planet. Kirk has made a log cabin and has built a forge that he can make axes and other metal tools. Back on the Enterprise, Wumper is notified that their alien oppressors are arriving at his homeworld. He will be taking his ship to defend the planet as best he can, knowing that it's a suicide mission. Spock offers to help, but Wumper declines the invite, saying that his people would rather die than have to ask someone to help them. Spock continues to plead the case that they should take help instead of going to certain death. Wumper agrees, and they travel to the homeworld. Once they're in range, Uhura informs the commander that three alien craft are on an intercept course. Spock orders the Enterprise to place itself between Wumper and the aliens. The aliens attack the Enterprise, but her mighty shields hold. Spock orders some warning shots directed towards the aliens. This tactic seems to work because the aliens retreat. Back on the planet, a very elderly Kirk makes what might be his last trip to the plateau. As always, his faithful pet Gary tags along. Kirk takes with him many of his belongings, including the large leaf-like paper tablets uh, that he's been riding on. When he arrives to the top, we finally see what he's been making with those red rocks. He has created a large Enterprise Command insignia. Back on the Enterprise, it continues to scan all the planets along their route. They find no intelligent life or signs of Kirk on any of them, until they scan one and Chekhov finds a large red Enterprise insignia. They find the tablets and the remains of Captain Kirk. They date that both of them have been on the plateau for about 167 years. Spock orders the Enterprise to slingshot around the nearby sun and they plan to pick up Kirk shortly after he arrived. They do so, and in an attempt to explain how they might find the red insignia again in the future, Spock orders a, the tractor beam to recreate it. Abruptly, we flash back to the Taz-era normal timeline. Kirk is back and states that he was only on the planet for about a day before Spock arrived and saved him. And yet, he has all these tablets that was written by another him who spent a whole lifetime on the planet. Kirk tells Spock that he thinks that he's going to be making some changes in his life. Kirk states that the five-year mission is ending in 52 days, so everyone's life will be different. We then flash back to the present movie era, where Kirk has finished reminiscing about the two lives he lived. Spock then informs him that they have arrived at Gibeon 2, and that this planet is now a thriving Wumper colony, and that they've named several cities after the legend of Captain Kirk. The end. Bravo! Except for the fast ending. 
Bravo! I, uh, I I really enjoyed the story of James C. Kirk, Mountain Man. <laughs> I did too. I really liked it. Um, I just hate that it, they wrapped it up with two pages of, oh, we're going to do this and we're going to do that, but we're not going to show you and it's over. Yeah. Well, they, they, they spent the most amount of time on the stuff that really, I think, gave the best benefit to the reader. And then the, the last bit was like, okay, you've seen the slingshot around the done before. So, uh, yeah, yeah, we, yeah we're, gonna, we're doing all that. Yeah, 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 yeah. So they spent the time. Yes, it was abrupt. But, I mean, they spent some time on, the, on what I thought were the best parts that you really didn't see Kirk in situations like that before. And quite frankly, I kind of like the, the whole storyline with Spock dealing with the uh, one par uh, commander so uh, yeah I, I kind of like both parallel story arcs there yeah I did too but you don't think that yeah. it would have been a great scene to see you know Spock or somebody you know yep. finding those bones that were Kirk's and you know right. cradling the skeleton knowing that that was their captain who died 167 years ago yep it would have been an incredible scene, right. And then yeah. it's just like, oh, by the way, we found his body and we're now slingshotting around the sun. And I'm like, what? Did I miss a page? What? It's just yeah. so abrupt. Yeah, and I, I, I agree with that. And I like the story so much, I was kind of, as I was uh, writing and thinking about this, I was just kind of envisioning, you know, what if at some point in the future, uh, you know, a Star Trek movie would, would do this kind of thing. And Chris Pine would be you know, the mountain man, Kirk, or whatever, and they'd finally get him rescued and stuff, and they'd be able to sh- so show scenes like that of coming upon the remains and all that kind of stuff. I think that'd be cool. Right. It'd never happen, but I think it's kind of cool. Well, it's funny that you mentioned Chris Pine, because when it shows bearded Kirk here yeah. uh, at the beginning of this issue, yeah, it really made me re- think of that rebooted series, The Ongoing Right. Where we saw Chris Pine playing, or not Chris Pine playing, but an uh, artist's rendition of what Chris <laughs> Pine would look like as uh, Sam Kirk, where he looked oh, like right, right, Grizzly right. Adams. As that reminds you of it? Hair. Yeah. Yeah, yeah um, I kind of see that. I kind of want to take that picture and one of these bearded pictures of Kirk here and see. Just separated at birth? Put them side by side and see how close they really look, or if it's right. just me. They, they think you're right about that. I think you're right about that. But anyways, I, I I did enjoy this story a lot. I just did not like the abrupt ending um, and how everything was just you know you've you've done a good job of telling two stories and and really flushing everything out and then the last two pages every panel is like several hours maybe days later and you've already done a lot of stuff in between right. just panels on a page. Yep. Yep. Rushing the ending. Right. But I liked it. I enjoyed it. Good. Um, I didn't really like the the BS time paradox thing about, oh, well, we got to recreate the insignia so that the future selves of us can find this spot and come back and free Kirk or whatever, which doesn't make sense because Kirk wouldn't be there to be saved. <laughs> exactly. Yes, yes. So, so, so they tried to explain how they're going to solve a paradox by something you don't want to think about too much. Because if you do, you you realize how ridiculous it is, right? And the, the the little log leaf paper, whatever it is, you know, they still have that. So wouldn't that also be a paradox that they have this yep. 
log from a yep. few uh, alternate version of Kirk. Yep. Another one of those great problems that come up with time travel. <laughs> but all they had to do was not even mention it. Oh, yeah, we're going right. to go back and f- uh, save Kirk because, you know, this was a planet that didn't have life, so him being there or not being there didn't have any cultural impact. So we can go back and, and save him before he lives out a whole life and dies. Right. But, Only yeah. it did end up having a cultural impact. The Eventually, and it took me a few minutes to kind of figure out what the heck was going on, but apparently the Wumpar came and settled on Gribbon too. And they revered the plateau where the, uh, the Starfleet uh, insignia is. Which was kind of interesting. I didn't get that at first. It's like, oh, uh, okay, yes, okay, I get it now. Right. What I didn't get is that we're so close to the Wumpar homeworld. Mm-hmm. Was this planet never colonized by the Wumpar, even during their big expansion before this alien race came and apparently and not beat them down? Apparently not. Because I'll be honest, that's what I kept waiting for in the you know the Grizzly Adams storyline is that. When was the first time the Wumpars showed up on that planet and found, you know, that version of Kirk? And then that's the reason why they they had him in such high regards, because he did something in the past that helped him. In the, you know what I mean? Right. Did, did something in the past that uh, they didn't know was Kirk, but, you know, and then somehow he would get back to the normal timeline and then come to find out, oh, it was it was you all along, you know, kind of thing. Right. Yeah. I mean, they didn't do that, but that's no. that's where I was thinking. No. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because quite frankly, if if there's people that think somebody's a hero, those one par should think that Spock's the hero. Exactly. I mean, he's the guy who was the leader that took the chance with the one par and uh, got rid of the, uh, the 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 Drasali or whatever the heck their names were. The bull the bullies. He's the guy that stood up and got rid of the bullies. He's the guy that's the hero. Now. If they want to say that the story of Kirk and how he persevered all these years and figured out to build this this large marker that could possibly save him through time travel, it's like, oh, wow, that's a good story. But I don't know why you'd call him a hero, but I don't know, maybe? I don't know. It's a little bit more of a stretch as far as I'm concerned. But. Right, and he's only and it's only 160 years in your past. So, right. I mean, how how long has that colony been there? I mean, I, I well, assume that the colony showed well, they, up shortly after Spock helped them. Exactly, exactly. So, they, I think they actually said it was their second expansion. Right. That they were allowed to do because now the bullies were gone. Right. So that city, that planet's only been colonized for what maybe 30 years? Not even that. Right. Yep. Not not a lot of a time. No, as far as a lot of time. civilizations go. So the fact that they went not to not to rush off on another topic, but it is related. When I look on page twenty and look at the insignia that Kirk was able to put out there, it's pretty much just the outline in red rock. So the out outside of the swoosh in red rock, and then the star on the inside is red rock. Right. Um, and then the rest of it's all brown. Yeah, just dirt. Right. Yet several pages later on page twenty one they show a shot of it from, from orbit, so you, you see the plateau it's on and how big the, the insignia is. But it's black on the outside. Uh, the outside etching is black, and the star is black, and the entire swoosh is filled in with red rock, except where the star is, in the very center. And right. those are clearly different color scheme. 
So at first I thought, what kind of mistake is that? But are they trying to say that that is the symbol that the Enterprise crew put there? Because no, Kirk because wouldn't it, it, be? it shows the symbol that the crew put there, and it it's a black Starfleet swoosh. Black, well, you know, black uh, outline, black outline with the red on no, the other side. the one that the the one that the ship makes is the one that's on page uh, twenty four. And it doesn't have any red in it at all. So the last page... Oh, yeah, yeah. Okay, so there's a third version. Okay. So we got three different versions of the the symbol. (laughs) Good point. Okay. So there's three distinctly different versions. And four if you want to count the one that's on the cover, which is well, you don't want to count that. It's the cover. It's the cover. (laughs) Okay, so yeah, yeah. You, You can mention that. Okay, fine. But that, you know, we all know the covers don't reflect the reality of the inside. Right. So, no, so, I, I, I'm with okay. you. I, I don't get why. And again, you know how, because when you're reading it and you're trying to piece your own story together on how this is going to all play out. Right. I, I really thought that the reason why it wasn't filled in when Kirk died and when it was filled in when they found it was that it did have some sort of significant, you know, ramifications to later a later civilization that colonized there. And they were the ones that filled it in. Right. But right. They didn't. They didn't mention that. So, I think we just have to chalk it up to a uh, coloring error. I guess so, because that's what I chalked it up to at first. But then I thought, well, maybe it's this whole thing where the uh, they're gonna put a new marker there. It's like, no, there's three different ones. Okay, fine. So, I, okay. So another thing I thought was odd is that the beginning of the issue where where Kirk uses a phaser on these wolf bear things, mm-hmm. um, it is the motion picture phaser. Not right. the Taz phaser. So, okay, I thought just because the motion picture, the time period of when the motion picture came up was so fu- so much further in the future from the Taz time period that that's when the new phaser comes in. But no, according to this comic anyway, they had sh- switched over to the new style phaser before the five-year mission was over, which right. I thought was a little unexpected. Interesting. I, I thought that was an interesting choice for the pencilers to make. Or the pencilers. To make. I, I liked it. Just like when we did, what was it, annual number two of the first DC run, uh, I liked that in that one, you know, they were ending their five-year mission, and Decker shows up, and he's wearing the uh, motion picture uniform, and he's like, right. oh, yeah, this is going to be the new <laughs> uniform right. soon. So right. I, I kind of like the... You know, especially when you're talking about the end of the five-year mission, I, right. I kind of like some bleeding in of the motion picture stuff with the um, the original series stuff. Right, and there's nothing wrong with that. It's just that it's not just because the time period was so much long. I mean, they could switch over uniforms and equipment at any time. Sure. It just I thought it was more towards the uh, motion picture time period, which there's two examples from the comics that say no. Right. I think what they should have done is I wish they would have had some sort of reference to the cartoon in the Taz part of this this issue. Because, huh. I mean, the the cartoon was supposed to be, you know, year four and five. Right. Because right? it lasted two seasons. So supposedly, you know, at the last – the end of the cartoon is supposed to be close to the end of their first five-year mission. And this All issue right. was supposed to be – at the end of their first five-year mission, I thought it would have been cool to show, you know, the Eric's or um, oh, some of the characters. Yeah, 
you know, just and they show one weird looking alien on on I think it was the last issue at the transporter room uh, that kind of looked like Rx, but it it was colored different, so and he didn't have his third arm, so it right. obviously wasn't him. But I was like, that's a really a missed opportunity there. Right. Uh, maybe it was that's this cool. issue. And those that remember that cartoon series would uh, would get, get a kick out of it. Uh, everybody remembers that cartoon series because it was awesome. Uh, I, I don't remember much about it. <laughs> I remember the th- I remember the theme song. <laughs> yeah, I hear it like every week. <laughs> <laughs> right. Uh, I, I liked how I liked the Gary Mitchell reference with the the creature being named Gary. Uh, he he named the creature Gary and. He did it to get back at Gary for naming some lab rat Jim in uh, That's you know, right. back, back in Starfleet Academy. So I thought That's that right. was kind of cool. Did you notice that when he was talking about all the people he missed, he mentions Carol and David? Right. Oh, yes, right, yeah. Uh, he, he, yeah, he, he was remembering and, and re- having a lot of remembrances of people that were in his life, right? Mm-hmm. Right, but I thought it was odd that he mentioned David because, you know, he he probably he well he knew who point. David was, but he didn't really have anything to do with his life. So it's just odd that 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 he would mention David. It in is this. his son. I know, but I mean, is he just like I wish I would have spent more time with him? I don't know. Yeah, I don't know. Just I don't know. Seemed seemed a little odd. Right. I thought it was interesting how. Kirk saved the remnants of his uniform for when he went to die. So he could wear it when he dies, yep. I thought that was very interesting, because in the middle of this comic, he's like in bearskins and stuff. Except his pants. Although, exactly, he's like, he's like Hulk pants. They, they last no matter what. <laughs> they, they last, it doesn't matter. He'll always have his pants, his black <laughs> pants. You know, in some scenes also, it looks like Kirk has, his feet are white, like, like he's got sweat socks on. Right, and then right. and then his sandal laces are over that. Right, and then there's other ones where it's more like what you'd expect, kind of flesh-colored feet, you know. And then the, there there's the straps and all that kind of stuff, you know, almost like a Roman time kind of out, you know, uh, footwear or something. Right. But then there's other times when his feet are completely white. He looks like he's got socks on. He looks like my you know my father. Sandals on socks. Yeah. Did you did you like in the beginning Kirk had the beard and then he shaves the beard off fairly yes. quickly and he has the mullet or the long hair? The mullet. <laughs> it does look a little mullety because because his the top part of his hair is not that long. He still right. parts it the same way. It looks like it still kind of falls yeah, in his it, eyes just, the same length. Yet well, the back is long. I mean the whole thing looks like it's longer, but yes, he keeps his hair combed back. He doesn't let his bangs go down over his. You know, unless, of course, there's an action sequence. <laughs> well, there's a shot where he's, like, chiseling out of the out of the rock wall, and, and yeah. it looks like he has bangs, so he's, oh, yes, he's yes, obviously you're right. cutting them. Yeah, I'm, I'm looking I'm looking at that, yes. And he's still got the uh, the Starfleet punk, pointy uh, uh, sideburns. sideburns. Right. <laughs> but he does have red hair. He, well, yeah, some some panels it's red hair and some panels it's kind of like a brown like a medium brown right. um, nothing nothing the color in the t- from the TV show right although you know I don't know he, he he never had blonde hair but it was pretty light brown it was very light 
So I thought the one part was pretty cool. I think I mentioned that in the last issue. But in the end, they turned out to be pretty cool guys. The You liked the way they looked? Kind of rodent-like? No, I didn't necessarily like the way they looked. I liked the way they acted. Yeah. So they were all nasty and stuff at the beginning. But right. then they turned out to be pretty cool. Yeah, once they realized Spock was not, you know, he was really being serious that he was trying to find his captain. Right. And then they were like, oh, well. You're honorable, so we'll help you. And then, well, we don't want you to die for us. We would rather, you know, die ourselves instead of asking for help. I, I like. I really like that storyline. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it was good. And then be able to be the uh, the powerful guy that comes in and fights off the bully. I always like seeing that. Right. That was. It was two really good issues. I, I liked them. Me too. Me too. Yeah, I thought it was kind of. I thought. I I think it's great that that Kirk ended up having a dog to right. to have some 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 companionship, but I thought it was rather odd that the final death gasps of the leader of the pack was to squeeze out a cub. I thought, wow, that's kind of weird. Yeah, I wasn't sure if that's what they were going for or if they meant that it was in some sort of pouch. I I could see it going both ways, like if it was some sort of kangaroo type thing. Well, yeah, I see see the pouch making more sense, but isn't there kind of like liquidy stuff around the... Well, there's blood, but he did just stab her in in the face. In the mouth. In the right. face, not in the ass. But, yeah, okay. Yeah, it could have gone either way. Either way, either way, I agree with you. Now, it does say the pack leader was pregnant. Oh, good point. And left a, cl- a cub. All right. But, eh, whatever. I thought that was very... So, I, it, it was good he had a dog. <laughs> so, that helps when you're a, a mountain man. Right. Alone against yeah, well, nature. Well, I was thinking more Grizzly Adams, where you have a pet grizzly. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. And a big old beard. Yeah. All right. Anything That's else? I thought I'd say. All right, then. So quickly, we'll go through the expanded universe. I'm just going to mention the novels that came out and who wrote them and, and what else those authors did. Uh, in July of 1994, there was a novel called Q Squared by Peter David. Are you familiar with Peter David? I think I've heard of him. I've seen yes. his seen his name before. And he's wrote he's wrote a thing or two about Star Trek. There you go. Q squared is a really good book. I recommend you reading it if you haven't. It's uh, basically Q and Trelane. So you find out that Q is Trelane's godfather, maybe father father, but we don't don't know for sure. And that he introduces Trelane to Picard. So it's actually a pretty good book. And with Peter David, he always ties in a bunch of you know. Uh, loose threads from different storylines and and weaves them together pretty well. So apparently it was Q with his then wife that was chastising Trelane at the end of the Squire of Gothos. It never comes out and says that, but it kind of maybe hints to it. Because that voice does not sound like John Delancey. No. So Q calls himself his godfather, but then... There was like one little scene where it kind of seemed like maybe he was his real father, but uh-huh. just called himself the Godfather. So right. I don't know. I recommend you reading it if you if you uh, if you can find it. Cool. And and again, it's always the revisionist thing that I have to bring up. Supposedly, at least part of Q's power came from a machine. Right. Uh, in the episode, at the end of the episode, yep. and that's clearly not a Q thing, no. needing mechanisms of any kind. But I, I do like the idea that Trelane could have been a Q, but I just gotta I just gotta point that out. Yeah, you're right. You're right. All right. So next up, 
August, uh, there was a Next Generation novel called Foreign Foes by David Galanter and Greg Bordier. The Dave Galanter has written nine uh, Star Trek Next Generation novels, and Greg Bordier wrote three Next Generation novels, always with Dave, uh, and one Voyager novel on his own. So they they wrote quite a few. Uh, also, that month was a Star Trek The Next Generation Starfleet Academy young adult novel called Atlantis Station by V.E. Mitchell. And uh, I don't know if V.E. Mitchell is a man or woman, but uh, they wrote two other original series um, novels. Right. Uh, September, an original series novel called Crossroad by Barbara Hambly. Uh, she wrote three other Star Trek The Original Series novels. She also wrote two Star Wars novels. Uh, this is how I know her. And I still think they're probably the worst Star Wars novels I've ever read. <laughs> so I've never read her Star Trek stuff. So she she uh, did not do it for me, hmm. unfortunately. Hope she's not listening. Oh. <laughs> uh, also that month was a Deep Space Nine novel called War Child by Esther Frisner. And Esther also wrote another Deep Space Nine novel and one Next Generation novel. So I, I kind of like it that the same authors are used in multiple different timelines, you know, different yeah, franchises. Yeah, sure. If you're a good writer. Yeah, and especially like, you know, Peter David or Michael Jan Friedman, they write so much in the different in the different timelines, but... You know, a lot of times they'll interweave their own, you know, a storyline in between two of them, kind of like doing an unofficial story arc. Right. Uh, where, you know, Michael Jan Friedman will mention something in his Stargazer novels and then later bring that, you know, a character that was in that book up into, uh, you know, the normal Next Generation timeline. Mm-hmm. I just, I think that's good. Yeah. You should have that kind of stuff. Yeah, why not? All right, that's it for this episode. So next episode, 115, will be releasing April 1st. So looking forward to that one. Yeah, me too. April 1st. Sounds good. Yeah, and I think uh, think we'll uh, actually have a guest guest host. Cool. Anytime we get a guest host, we like it. So if you're listening and you feel like you want a guest host, uh, just give us a ring. We'll make it happen. That sounds good. All right. Cool. So talk to you guys next week. See you next time. On the review, Star Trek comic book review with Donovan and Ken. Later. Thank you for listening to Star Trek comic book review. All Star Trek stories and characters are copyrighted CBS Studios Incorporated. All music stories and characters discussed are for entertainment purposes only. You can email us at startcomicbookreview at gmail.com. Visit us at our website, www.stcomicbookreview.com. Subscribe to us via iTunes. Or friend us on Facebook at first name, ST Comic, second name, Book Review. See you next time on Star Trek Comic Book Review. Let's get the hell out of here.